Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. Now, it's kind of ironic that today we look at eating and Paul's advice on when to abstain from eating in certain situations. And we're doing this on Mother's Day, the day that if we were not in a pandemic, we would be taking our mothers out for brunch or dinner. Just an observation. Well, today we are going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. Last Sunday, Steve finished off in chapter 7, so today we're going to look at chapter 8 in its entirety. But before we do that, do you ever get the feeling that Paul was at times pulling his hair out with the church in Corinth? You know, it makes perfect sense why he would be. Corinth was a large city. It was a gateway city with well-established ports, making it a trading hub. It had at least two things of notoriety about it. It was rich and it was immoral. In fact, the Greeks coined a phrase to Corinthianize, meaning to live shamelessly and immorally. It would no doubt have been difficult for Paul to shepherd any church from afar in his day, let alone one whose members came from a background full of idol worship and who daily faced the temptations that they did. Others like Apollo spent time ministering to the Corinthians after Paul left, but as we see in Paul's letter to them, the church was struggling to remain true to God. Now, Paul was instrumental in helping to establish the church in Corinth, which is near Athens, Greece. He did this during his second missionary journey, and it was on his third missionary journey that news of the problems within the Corinthian church reached Paul while he was in Ephesus. And it was from Ephesus that Paul wrote the letter that in our Bible is titled 1 Corinthians, and he wrote it around A.D. 54 or 55. Paul would later visit Corinth for the second time after leaving Ephesus to follow up on the letter that he sent. Now, we need to keep in mind the trials of traveling in Paul's day. The distance from Ephesus to Corinth is roughly about the same as the distance from Timmins to Toronto. But Paul would have had to travel by foot or by animal as far as the Aegean Sea, and then from there he would have to find a ship sailing in the direction that he wanted to go. No ferry schedules or best westerns and certainly no Tims along the way. I'm surprised people made it to their destinations, let alone letters. That's a brief recap of some of the background that we have been learning as we study this letter to the Corinthian church. Well, we continue this morning with Paul's answers to specific questions within the Corinthian church. Paul had just answered questions regarding marriage, and now he moved on to a new question. And let's read the passage before us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. The Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 
But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brothers to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, before we get into the meat of addressing the concern of food sacrifice to idols ourselves, it would be good to define idol worship as seen through the lens that the New Testament church was living in. We can find that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, which reads, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Well, that sets the scene or the background for Paul's concern. And now in chapter 8, Paul starts with a statement now about food sacrifice to idols. And this is not the only time Paul has had to address such an issue. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul responds to Christian liberty surrounding food in Romans chapters 14 and 15. Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church while in Corinth around AD 57-58. So unique is, so Corinth is not unique in its challenges. Also, as we will later study in chapter 10, Paul again addresses food sacrifice to idols as he continues on in his dissertation to the Corinthians on their freedoms and responsibilities in Christ. But why is this such a big topic in Paul's day? Paul doesn't address specifically the root causes of the issue of is it okay to consume food that has been offered or sacrificed to idols or even just eating certain foods in general. But we can infer from what we do know in passages such as those directed to the Corinthian church and other churches like that in Rome that sacrificing food to idols was a common practice in this part of the world in Paul's day. Also, several years prior to this letter being that's titled First Corinthians having been written. In Acts chapter 14, it records what is often referred to as the first church council. You see, a debate had gone on surrounding the idea that Gentile Christians in Antioch and surrounding areas 
should be made to follow customs that were handed down by Moses, notably circumcision. Paul and Barnabas were tasked to go to Jerusalem and meet with the elders and apostles and discuss and settle the dilemma. A compromise of sorts was reached and a formal letter was drafted and sent back to those churches. And we have a record of that letter. It's found in Acts chapter 15, verses 23 to 29. And this is that letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So we can establish that this was not an isolated issue within the church in Corinth. Idol worship was very common in Paul's day. And part of that worship included sacrificing or offering food to those idols in their temple. Just by means of example, the the false god Venus and the temple built to worship her was a main feature in Corinth. It's believed that there were about 1,000 prostitutes employed within this temple alone. There were other false gods also worshipped, as Paul laid reference to in verses 5 and 6 when he said, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And as part of their idol worship, food would be brought into their respective temples. Some would be left behind in the temple as an individual sacrifice and the rest taken home to be consumed. Or during larger community sacrifices, the excess food would be sold in the marketplace. It appears that's where the struggle was greatest within the Corinthian Christians. Was it okay to consume this food that was offered in sacrifice to the pagan gods of the Corinthians? And it would be safe to assume that many of these Christians in Corinth would have not that long ago been taking part in these very sacrifices themselves. It's interesting how Paul approaches this dilemma. He doesn't get dragged into a debate about the issue, but rather Paul gives his opinion or his advice without choosing sides. He gives this advice without laying down a set of do's and don'ts on the subject. He gives his opinion without dividing the church. This was one of those situations that, if not handled carefully, it had the potential to split the church. If Paul handled it wrong, it could easily have caused people to divide into two or even multiple camps. Now, last week, Steve touched on Paul's life before his conversion. Before his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul may very well have been in the mindset to do just that, to try and settle this with a list of pharisaical commands. Prior to his conversion, Paul describes himself in the book of Philippians thusly, and this is found in Philippians Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, in which Paul says of himself, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That was Saul before he became Paul. The new Paul chose a very different path to resolve this, and he lays out the roadmap right at the beginning as soon as he states the uh, the question. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. Paul gives his personal opinion or advice here. Now, I can't say it was biblically based advice. Now, before you start lighting up that Zoom chat feature, asking me the question, Jim, what are you talking about? Let me explain. I can't say it was biblically based because the Bible as we know it today had not yet been compiled when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In fact, you could say Paul was still writing portions of the Bible that have been part of the book that we treasure so much as Christians. Now, I don't say this to split hairs or to talk semantics, but rather I say it as an observation that Paul could not rely on the Bible as we know it for guidance because it was not yet in existence. The books of the Old Testament were available to be studied, and Paul as a Pharisee would have been very familiar with them. But the teachings of Jesus Christ and the new covenant he ushered in was still being recorded. And it would be a couple more centuries before all these writings would be compiled into one book that we call the Bible. So even though we technically could not say that Paul's opinion was biblical, I believe that we can say with all confidence it was godly. It was godly because Paul was being led by God's spirit. The proof of that is in the gifts and the power that God entrusted Paul within his ministry. As while Paul would have been, Paul would have had access to firsthand accounts of the apostles and the time they spent with Jesus. Now Paul went on to comment how all these false gods are of no concern at all as they are not real and they have no power other than the power to affect a weak Christian's conscience. And Paul stated, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Now here in All Square, Paul develops the idea that you do not sin against God by what you eat, providing your conscience is clear when you do. In other words, our Christian freedom or liberty allows us to consume food without worry of judgment on God's part, since God made clean all that he created. We are no closer to God for what we eat or what we don't eat. Also, during Jesus's ministry, some Pharisees questioned Jesus, Jesus and his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, it reads, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat. See, here the Pharisees were challenging Jesus on their ceremonial tradition of washing hands before eating. This had nothing to do with hygiene, or but it had, rather it had everything to do with Pharisaical traditions. Jesus replied, and he replied in Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, when Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, 
That is what makes him unclean. Jesus went on to explain that how we eat does not defile us, but what can condemn us before God is what we say and how we say it. And this is the foundation that Paul builds his teaching around in answering the question now about food sacrifice to idols. And Paul lays that foundation in the very first paragraph when he plays down knowledge and builds up love. Paul showed a lot of wisdom in giving an answer that answers the question without call for challenge or debate. Paul acknowledged that we all possess knowledge. Some some of us have a little knowledge and others have a little more. But knowledge that is not tempered with love can be like a bull in a china shop. It can wreak havoc and destruction. You've all heard the expression, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Well, even a lot of knowledge can be dangerous if used incorrectly or selfishly. The temptation to puff ourselves up with the knowledge we possess is real. It's not wrong to have knowledge or even use it, but love must be the guiding force in the use of knowledge. Mere knowledge without love leads to pride and vain self-confidence, whereas knowledge tempered with love leads to a godly confidence. The way to distinguish between the two is to ask yourself the question, am I expressing my knowledge to build myself up or to build my Christian brother or sister up? If we honestly examine ourselves, our conscience will reveal our motives. So Paul starts off his response to the question of food sacrifice to idols, not by jumping in on the subject with a detailed advice like he did in chapter 7 with um, a lot of examples and and, um, uh, advice and, and guidance and opinions, as he did on marriage and relationships. But rather he's establishing a relationship guideline that the Corinthians would need to follow in order to achieve the best outcome. The difference between chapter 7 and 8 is that in chapter 7, Paul, for the most part, is speaking to choices that affect individuals or their immediate family. Whereas in chapter 8, Paul is speaking to choices that can affect a much broader range of relationships. In chapter 8, the choices of the Christian are being watched by other Christians beyond the family domain, and that can have farther reaching ramifications and consequences. We don't know who's watching us from afar. And that can have, um, that can affect a Christian. And we may not even be aware of it. Now, that doesn't exclude these guidelines in chapter 8 from pertaining to a family unit. That same love needs to be expressed to all. But in chapter 8, the potential for harm has a much broader audience than it did in chapter 7. To this particular question of consuming food sacrificed to idols, Paul simply states, consider the needs of those around you more important and exercising the freedoms you have as a Christian. Not everybody will be as confident as you are in this area of freedom, and your actions may have consequences that can cause someone to sin. And Paul states, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Should this food sacrifice to idols have been a concern to these weaker Christians? Well, no, it shouldn't. But the fact remained that for some it was. And the more confident Christian needed to be mindful of their actions because their actions could affect those around them. Now, Paul doesn't state this anywhere in chapter 8, but I'm going to caution those who would put themselves in the confident Christian camp not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. 
You need only refer back to verses 1 and 2 for the reason why when Paul said, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. The tables can be just as easily turned in another situation. In another situation, it may arise where you are the weaker Christian and the other person is more confident in their Christian freedom. Christian maturity doesn't guarantee perfection in our walk with God, and we need to pay careful attention to that every day. In chapter 8, Paul has been addressing Christian liberty, that is freedom within the confines of God's law. We must be very careful not to equate this as being freedom from God's law. The new covenant that Jesus ushered in is one of salvation by grace. And though we are not under the law in regards to salvation, God does set boundaries and limitations for our safety and well-being. And we need to be careful not to exceed these boundaries. Otherwise, we risk God's corrective discipline in our lives. How do you know if someone is teaching correctly with respect to Christian freedom or liberty? By simply asking the question, does the authority originate with man or with God? In other words, is the boundary being established or conversely the freedom being expressed coming from mankind's philosophy or is it originating from God's wisdom? Even when Paul gave his opinion and his advice like he did in chapter 7 and in in chapter 8, he based it on God's wisdom. Now, an example of mankind's philosophy can be found in Matthew 15, verse 2, which we read earlier, which is an example of pharisaical tradition or philosophy. When the Pharisees asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat. Whereas an example of God's wisdom can be found in Jesus' reply. When Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, speaking of how the knowledgeable Christian need not alter his or her convictions. But in the case that we have today before us, they do, they do need to alter their behavior For the sake of the weaker Christian, I'm going to say this again because it's a key point that you have to keep in mind. When Paul wrote to those Corinthian Christians, he told them how the knowledgeable Christians don't need to alter their convictions. But they do need to alter their behavior for the sake of the weaker Christian. This is a tangible act of love. And it needs to be the cornerstone of our relationship to each other. In looking for a modern-day illustration to Paul's teaching in chapter 8, I came up with what might be considered more of a parable. I have an earthly story that hopefully can help us understand the heavenly directive of showing God's love to our Christian brothers and sisters. All of us know that our roadways have speed limits. Some don't act like they know it, but all of us know that our roadways have speed limits. Even those who don't have a driver's license recognize this. If you go too slow, you may be pulled over for creating a hazard. And if you go too fast, you will definitely be pulled over if you attract the attention of a police officer. But within a certain speed range, you have a freedom to use your judgment to drive at a safe speed. In other words, you have a liberty as a driver to drive at whatever speed you deem appropriate for yourself within the confines of the judgment of the authority of those who set the speed limits. 
On a clear summer day, you may drive at the maximum speed limit safely and without fear of an accident or a ticket. But you do not have the authority to drive at whatever speed you would like. Well, let's change the circumstances a little bit. Instead of a, uh, a nice clear summer day, let's make your drive take place during the winter on a snowy day with the road conditions being not so good. If you're smart, you'll adjust your speed to suit the conditions to be safe. But what if you come upon a vehicle in front of you who's going slower than you are? That person in front of you may be a new driver who's not yet confident enough to drive any faster than they are going. You, you yourself do feel confident to drive faster and you don't want to remain behind that slower driver. What you do next can have a dramatic effect on the less experienced driver. You may choose to pass that slower driver and you may even be able to do it safely. But what will your message be to that driver? You may in fact embolden the less experienced driver for themselves to speed up thinking if that person who just passed me can go faster, maybe I should be able to go faster as well. But because of their lack of experience, they are involved in an accident and you may not even be aware of it if you're far enough down the road. Well, how much responsibility would you have in that person's accident and possible injuries? Now, in your defense, you can claim, well, I didn't tell that person to go any faster than they were capable of going. But nonetheless, your actions may have emboldened them to do just that. This is the danger Paul was trying to warn the Corinthian Christians about when it comes to exercising Christian freedoms around weaker Christians. This is what Paul was looking to address in Corinth when he answered the questions about food sacrificed to idols. Those who are stronger and more confident in their faith have a responsibility towards those who are weaker in their faith and perhaps not as confident in some aspects of it. Our words and our actions need to be tempered with love or else we risk wounding those Christian brothers and sisters. Paul showed the tangible way to express love in this instance when he said, therefore, if what I eat causes my brothers to fall into sin, I will never again eat meat so that I will not cause them to fall. Well, I'd like to close this morning with an example of Christian love for each other that I have witnessed taking place, not around food sacrifice to idols, but just as profound nonetheless. It's very hard or very rare to come across an example of idol worship in a temple that involves sacrificial food in today's society. We just don't see it openly in North America. But that doesn't mean we don't have opportunities to express the kind of love that Paul was expounding on. The example that I have is different in nature than Paul's situation, but very much involves a body of Christians loving each other. In the context of the letter to the Corinthians we are looking at this morning, Paul is stressing that stronger, more confident Christians need to alter their behavior in order to prevent weaker Christians from falling into sin. The context of the example I share with you this morning is not about preventing weaker Christians from falling into sin, but rather it's an example of altering our behavior for the sake of unity within the body. This past year, the COVID pandemic has changed our lives immensely. Even when things go back to the way they were, the memory of this period in time will stick with us for a very long time afterwards. We've all faced challenges to our everyday life that nobody saw coming. Who would have predicted before this that I would have to be delivering a sermon to you over the internet because there would be a 10 person limit within churches and other institutions within our community? 
or that when we have been able to meet together with more people in the building, there would be a, re a requirement for everyone to wear a face mask while they're in the building. Now, in a way, wearing a face mask has become a lightning rod of opinions, so much so that just the mention of wearing masks is probably causing some people to sit up and pay closer attention, wondering what I'm going to say next about them. We all have our own personal opinions about the subject of masks, and most of us by now are fixed in those opinions. Some wear masks to protect themselves, some wear masks to protect others, some wear them to protect themselves and others, and some, to, and some people wear them because they have no other choice. It's not my intent to get into a discussion today about wearing masks. We've all been farther down that road than any of us ever wanted to go. What I want to say to you this morning is that, as an elder, is that you'll never know how much it means to me to see a building full of people wearing a mask as you have been doing this past year. There have been many discussions around the need, the requirement, and even the effectiveness of wearing a mask, but yet you've done it. And what means so much to me as an elder is not what you might think the reason is. That is that you've merely been following the guidelines that were conveyed to you as passed down to us by the health unit. It goes way beyond just following instructions. For some of you, it's awkward to wear a mask. For some, it's uncomfortable. For some, it, at times, it's caused problems. For some of you, you may not believe that it's even a necessity. For others, it's been no big deal at all. I think for all of us, though, we will be glad when we don't have to wear one any longer. Perhaps we can have a burning of the face mask bonfire in the church backyard when this is all over. But you have worn one. You may not have realized it, but what you have been doing as we travel this path together is to show that love to each other that Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to show to one another in his letter to them. You're showing love to those around you, regardless of your view on face masks, whether you realize it or not. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. That's what has really struck me as an elder. You're wearing a face mask and showing your love to those around you. And no one has had to write to you a letter to encourage you to do so the way Paul wrote to the Corinthians. That can only come from God's love being in you. None of you have been asked to change your convictions but we all have been asked to change our behavior. Good on you guys for doing it. Good on you. Every Sunday, someone speaks to us of how we can live our lives for God more earnestly and more deeply. But it's not that often we have the chance to celebrate together us doing just that as a group. Take joy in this accomplishment. But don't put yourself on a pedestal. Take joy, but... Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, as I'm sure there's going to be more opportunities down the road that will require us to show that same love to each other again in a completely different situation. Hopefully we won't see another pandemic in our lifetime, but I'm sure the opportunity will present itself to love each other the way God loves us. We are in this world, but as God has pointed out, we are not of the world. And I'm sure there's a new challenge waiting for us around the next corner. Today, though, Today, we can be joyful in the understanding that we have tempered our knowledge with love and put the consideration of those around us above our own self-interest. I don't see this out in the rest of the world. All of the news, all of the social media, it's all about my rights, my self-interest, what I want to get out of, out, of, out of, what I want to get out of all of this. But that's not what I've seen at BFA. I've seen people setting aside their convictions, 
and altering their behavior for the sake of unity and love within the body. So today I say to you, well done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful day it is that we have, that we can celebrate motherhood. You created motherhood. You created the family. You created love. The Bible says we can love because you first loved us. Without you, none of this would be in existence. But because of you, we have the ability to show love. We can show love to our mothers. Paul showed love to the Christians in Corinth when he wrote to them. He showed them a fatherly love and a fatherly care for them. And that love for them that he had for them came from you because you first loved him, because your son loved him enough to challenge him on that road to Damascus. Paul was able to love those Corinthian Christians. Love is such a powerful emotion. It can cause people to do great and mighty things. Knowledge, as important as it is, is not as important as love, as we'll learn farther on in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Thank you today for this time, Lord, and I pray that we would all take the time to appreciate our mothers and motherhood and appreciate the fact that God has given us the opportunity to love them and to be loved by them. Thank you for all these things, Lord, and uh, I pray for this in your name. Amen. Good day to everybody. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.